Welcome to the Professional Writer Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Christensen, and I'm here to help you confidently plan, launch, and grow your writing-related business. Whether you're an emerging or an established writer looking for practical tips to help you develop and sustain forward momentum, or you enjoy candid conversations with business professionals who share what it is really like to be a professional writer, you're going to get that here on the Professional Writer Podcast. You'll find the show notes and a link to join our private Facebook community at bloggingbistro.com forward slash podcast. Speaking of having candid conversations with business professionals who share what it is really like to be a professional writer, today I have joining me Susan Meisner. Hi, Susan. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Susan is a USA Today bestselling author of historical fiction with more than half a million books in print in 15 languages. And we'll be talking about a couple of her books today on the podcast. She's a California native. She attended Point Loma Nazarene University, and she's also a writing workshop volunteer for Words Alive, which is a San Diego nonprofit dedicated to helping at-risk youth foster a love for reading and writing. Let's start, Susan, by talking about your most recent novel, The Nature of Fragile Things, which earned a starred review in Publishers Weekly. Congratulations for that, by the way. Thank you. That's always very nice to have that kind of affirmation. I love historical fiction, Susan. It's one of my favorite genres to read. And I have read my share of what I would call young Irish woman immigrates to New York to forge a new life or young mail order bride falls deeply in love with a handsome stranger. Now, your book does feature a young Irish immigrant who is a mail order bride, but that's where the similarities to the typical plot line end. Your story is so full of twists and turns and surprises clear to the very end. It kept me so engaged and so interested. How do you go about crafting that story arc to avoid the kind of cliched mail order bride plot line that we've seen in so many other novels? Well, I wanted that, that protagonist who's telling the story, her name is Sophie, and she's the only point of view character in the whole novel. So she's telling the whole story. It's from her point of view. And I wanted her to have a very compelling reason to leave New York and go to San Francisco. And she's going to marry this man that she doesn't know. He's a stranger to her. And that, to me, is just very interesting. I'm like, who would do that? Like, what kind of person makes that kind of choice? She's got to have some pretty good reasons, at least to my thinking, because I would never do that. I would never marry a stranger. So I'm thinking to myself, well, she's got to be pretty desperate. So what, what brought her to New York? I could have probably given her any kind of persona, but I chose an Irish immigrant because I have family members that came to America that way. It's the story of so many Americans where the beginning was your ancestors came from some other place and they came to America to forge a new life. It happened in any kind of different ways. You know, not everybody had a wonderful experience. Some people had to struggle to make that new life happen. Some people had very interesting things happen to them. I think it's just a common experience. I think the immigrant experience is like in the fabric of all of our beginnings when you talk about your ancestry. So that appealed to me. The mail order bride angle appealed to me because I would never do that. <laughs> and then, of course, giving her reasons to come to New York first and then to leave it so quickly to marry a man she does not know. That, to me, they're just compelling reasons to either read a story like that or to write one. The stars kind of aligned with those different things um, happening to Sophie. 
What can you tell us about the story without revealing any spoilers? Mm-hmm. Well, she leaves New York because she's desperate to get out. She says that in the very beginning of the book. That's mm-hmm. not a spoiler. She doesn't say why exactly. She hints at it, but there are things about her life that she doesn't revisit, not even for you, the reader. She kind of keeps her past close to the chest. And it's not because she's being sneaky with you, the reader. She just doesn't revisit parts of her past. And you can tell that something happened there that makes her sad, so she doesn't talk about it. So she marries a a San Francisco widower who's got this little girl, and he wants somebody from the East Coast. He's lost his wife. And this was common, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, especially if you lived out West and you didn't have a wife and you wanted one. There were far more men in the West than women in the early part of the 20th century. So it wasn't uncommon for uh, a woman to answer a mail-order bride ad. That's why that shtick of the mail-order bride is a common story starter, because it really did happen. And he, um, he puts the ad out in the Eastern newspapers because he wants somebody from where he's from. And she answers the ad. And everything is fine at first. And she comes to a beautiful city, San Francisco, in 1905 when she first arrived. is a beautiful, vibrant, bustling city. There's a lot going on. She finally has everything she's long wanted. Besides being out of New York, she's got a beautiful house to live in. He's very handsome. He's not a mean man or abusive. He's kind. He's kind in a way. He's a good provider. And she's got this little girl of his to love. And she knows that she can't have children. So she she has 90% of everything she's wanted for a long time. And the only wrinkle is there's something up with him, this new husband of hers. His name is Martin. And she can't quite figure out what it is. But he's like distant and, uh, and aloof and even with his own child and She attributes this to the loss of his wife. She gets it. You know, grief is hard. It's a hard road. It needles at her that there's something up with him, but she dismisses it because she has everything else that she's wanted. And she's able to dismiss it until a certain day in April 1906, about a year later, when her world begins to crumble just hours before the earth really literally begins to crumble beneath her feet. The setting is a 1906 San Francisco earthquake. It's not really an earthquake book as much as it's a story about life and love, Mm -hmm. mother love and all of those things. But the earthquake certainly provided a lot of organic, natural tension to tell this story. Yes, it certainly did. I've read San Francisco earthquake books before, too. Just the way that you so naturally wove that huge historic event into the storyline was really compelling for me. And I think it added a lot to the story. In some senses, some novels, the setting becomes a character in the novel. And in this case, it kind of was. Or the fact that the earthquake took place while all these momentous things were happening in her life. The two just intertwined so naturally. I think it's good when we as writers think about how the setting implicates our characters. Like, how does the setting perform within you know the individual person's life and you know sometimes it's hugely impactful like this and sometimes it's quiet and subtle I think it's good to think about your setting like how can you use it to tell your story because it's there for the taking everything about your setting is like it's available to you so what, what what will you use from it how did you go about researching the earthquake specifically Yeah, you know, even though I grew up in California, I grew up with earthquakes. I lived in San Diego all my growing up years, and we had them all the time, little ones. And so the phenomenon of an earthquake wasn't uncommon to me, but I really didn't know much about the 1906 quake, even though it was pretty definitive for California history. So I had a lot to learn. And the good thing about historic events like that is they're well represented by nonfiction writers. And so there's an excellent book by Simon Winchester, a New York Times bestseller, very well vetted. So everything that he packed into that book, I felt like I could trust. 
So I began with that and then just went on from there using his sources as places to go to next. And I visited San Francisco. I, I wrote this book before the pandemic, so I was able to actually go to the city and walk the streets, kind of get a feel for um, that city. Even even a hundred some years ago, there's a lot mm-hmm. about about it that still is. You know, the echoes of the past are there if you look for them. And then it was just uh, listening and and reading about firsthand accounts. I feel like whenever we have a chance to look at firsthand accounts, they're the best because these are people that lived it. They're talking about it. They experienced it. There are parameters to a personal experience because you're not everyone. You're just one person. But if you read all of these personal accounts, there's there's a melding of of all of them and you find the commonalities of all those personal experiences. And uh, that was really great because you can't really, I can't interview anybody. I can't interview a survivor from that event Mm because it happened too long ago. I really did rely on literary remains, and I'm really glad that there there are. There are newspaper articles and diary accounts and memoir from people who lived it, who saw it, who felt it, who survived it. And I was very grateful that people took the time to write down their experience so that, you know, a hundred and some years later, we can read about it. The title of that book is The Nature of Fragile Things, and it is a really, really good book. I just finished reading it Thank a couple you. of weeks ago. Now, one thing that you mentioned just briefly when you were talking was that you have moved on. Obviously, you're now writing another book. So can you give us a little sneak peek about what is in the hopper? What are you working on now? I'm finishing up the first draft of the book that will come out, I believe, um, in February of 2023. I'm on a two-year schedule now because there's going to be a paperback release in between now and then of this current book, The Nature of Fragile Things, which came out in hardcover first. Okay. And so the, the working title for this new one is called Only the Beautiful. And the setting is early 20th century California. And the particular historic event that I'm focusing on is the eugenics movement, which we don't hear much about now. And it's probably a good thing. It wasn't a very good thing. It was a kind of an ideology to improve the human race. That was the goal of the eugenic leaders. And they saw that if we just produced healthier, wiser, happier children, we could improve society. But the only way to execute that plan is to prevent people who they feel are inferior from having children. So it's just the ideology when you start to like get down to actually making it happen was it was really impactful to people who were considered either of low intelligence or impoverished or perhaps had a criminal background. They were even sterilizing women who had a rather active sex life, which I don't condone at all. That's not a reason to put somebody under an operating table and, and sterilize them. And that's mm. what was happening. So and they, were, they were even sterilizing people who had epilepsy. It quickly started to look like what Nazi Germany was doing during the 1930s. It was eliminating a gene pool that they didn't like. And that's what was happening in California and other states. 30 states had eugenic laws. Um, the eugenic leaders thought we need to have a precedent. And so they had a certain case that went all the way to the Supreme Court so that all the states could use that case as a precedent for having eugenic laws. So this one girl, she proved to be a good case study. And it feels to me like she was railroaded. And she was only 17, had a baby out of wedlock that was not her fault. By her account, she was molested. She was seen as feeble-minded. She really wasn't. She had average grades. But in any case, she was sterilized. And so were 20,000 other people in California. And then nationwide, it was like 60,000 people over a period of 30 years 
were forcibly sterilized so that they could not have children. Now, there are no states with eugenic laws. They all kind of went by the wayside, partly because of what we saw that happening in World War II, and partly because people just became wiser to this notion that one person can't decide over another person, well, you're not good enough to have children. You're not good enough to reproduce. It, it's just that the ideology was just flawed. So let's go back in time a little bit to 2004, your debut novel, Why the Sky is Blue. That novel was published by a Christian publishing house, but eventually you transitioned into writing for the general market. So let's talk about that a little bit. Why you started off in the Christian market, why you decided to transition into writing for the general market, and what that all looked like for you. What I was thinking at the time, because I I had this itch to write a novel. I was working at a newspaper, and I didn't really have the time to devote to it. I had put it off, it felt like, for a long time. And my favorite author at the time was Lisa Sampson. And I thought, well, she's writing such beautiful books. I wonder if I could do that. It was really more or less of just wondering where could I get into this gig. Because I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any contacts of any kind. I didn't even really know what a writer's conference was. <laughs> this was before the really the age of the Internet. So we didn't have the connections we have now. So I felt like that was the only direction I could go because nobody knew me and I'd never even tried it. So it was really just what I had was the love of writing Lisa Sampson's beautiful works as a, like an impetus to even try. And so when I wrote my first book, Why the Sky is Blue, and began looking for a publisher, I thought I'll go in the Christian market. And so I got Sally Stewart's Market Guide, which mm -hmm. back then was the guide yes. that we all <laughs> used. And I just went through that book looking for any publisher that might give me a look-see. Because again, I knew no one. I didn't have an agent. I wasn't connected in any way at all. And so I just feel like God was really nice to me in, in letting Harvest House find me. And, uh, and, they, and they did offer me a contract. And so I didn't even consider whether or not I had the chops for the general market. I didn't think I did. And so I thought, I need to start where I think I have a chance. I think that was probably wise for me because I was very, very green and didn't really know much about anything other than I wanted to write. So it was a good place for me to begin. How many books did you write for the Christian market before you transitioned into writing for the general market? Well, I think I wrote nine for Harvest House. Oh, okay. I was really motivated and I was writing shorter books back then. So I was writing two a year. I don't do that now. And I, I'm amazed I even did it then. But they were shorter books. They weren't historical fiction. I was kind of finding my way. I switched over to Waterbrook Press um, in 2008 with The Shape of Mercy, which was my first book that had a historical fiction thread. It was dual timeline, so it wasn't strictly historical fiction. But I really liked dabbling with that. I hadn't tried that before. It was just that story called for it. That story just wanted a dual timeline construction and I kind of found my way with that book. It was really well-received. It was the first book that got a starred review in Publishers Weekly. It got some nice awards. So I felt like I kind of found my lane, and it was historical fiction. I haven't gone back to contemporary since. All of my books since 2008 are either dual timeline historical fiction or straight historical fiction. And I feel like it, it really is my wheelhouse. And it wasn't until 2013 or 2012 where I felt like I wasn't reaching my ideal reader within the Christian market. I felt like I fit the market in that I'm a, I'm a believer. I love fiction. But I feel like my ideal reader was reading general market fiction because my faith threads in my books were so subtle, which is what I wanted. I wanted anybody to pick up my book and be able to read it and, and get it. 
And I think it was just too subtle for your average reader who buys Christian label fiction. I just tried to see if I could make that migration from the Christian market to the general market. And again, I didn't know if I could do it, but I knew that I had to try. I didn't want to come to the end of my writing career without having tried. First of all, you found your lane in writing historical fiction. So it sounds like you dabbled with a couple of different Mm -hmm. genres of fiction, and then you discovered that historical fiction was kind of your thing. Mm -hmm. And so you knew to stick with that. But then you also discovered through this process of writing quite a few books, actually, for the Christian market, that you weren't reaching your specific Mm -hmm. ideal reader because your faith themes were very subtle, and maybe the typical Christian reader was looking for something more out there, more blatantly, quote-unquote, Christian than what you were including in your novel's themes. So you have those two things in place, and how did you go about forging connections in the general market industry? The first thing I knew I needed to do was just write a great book that (laughs) fit the market, and I thought, I can't think about anything else. I've got to think about that only. And I had a couple of different publishers in mind that I thought might take a peek at it, maybe. But I knew that my first priority was writing a great book. And I know that, you know, general market means it's general, so it's not specific. And so I knew that I couldn't have a specific kind of bent toward the novel, which meant that any kind of subtle Christian messages, I didn't need them to be able to get a contract. I needed to make sure that the story was king, that the story was the story. And there was no other underlying theme there was it was the story first. And of course, since I'm a believer, my faith is going to bleed out of me whenever I write anything. So I wasn't really worried about compromising my values because I knew that even if I wrote a general market book, who I am and how I think is going to show up in the pages. So it was coming up with a compelling story, which I felt like I did with the transitional book was A Fall of Marigolds. And your readers can look it up if they wish to see what kind of book is a, that kind of book, because it okay. was my transitional book. And it's got, I would say, themes that are universal and true, and um, any believer can see what they are. But any any non-believer, too, any non-believer loves to be loved. You know, any mm-hmm. any non-believer knows that when you go through a hard time of grief, you can't stay there. You know, grief is not a place to stay. It's a place to move through, and that's true of anybody. So things like that I knew were thematically things that could belong in a book in any kind of market. So it was writing a great book, concentrating on universal themes, not when I would say very focused themes, but universal themes that are true of, of everybody, everywhere, and that, that are timeless. And it had to be finished. I was at the point now in my career where I could just write a proposal and I could get the contract. But I knew with making the switch, I was like debut all over again. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so it was to write the book first before we shopped it out with my agent at the time. Once we had the book done and it felt like it was good and it fit what the general market reader was already reading, that's when we started shopping it out. And my first times of getting others to see it, I went to a writer's conference before I was even ready to pitch it, because pitching a book at a writer's conference is very stressful. And I wanted to be able to talk to some general market editors without the pressure of feeling like I was pitching. So I went to a writer's conference and I signed up for a couple of pitching sessions. And I just sat with those editors and I said, here's what I want to do. And I told them what the book was about. And I pitched it as if I was pitching it, but I wasn't. <laughs> I just wanted to hear what they A pitch that isn't a pitch. <laughs> yeah, because it wasn't pressurized. You know, it yeah. wasn't like I wasn't trying to sell the book. I was trying to 
gauge their interest. Like, yes. if I did this, do you think you'd want to see it? And all three of them said, yeah, mm-hmm. I would look at that, which was very affirming to me because I hadn't finished writing it. I was in the middle of writing it. So now I felt like I had the go-ahead, the green light, if you will, from those editors to give it a shot. I felt like that was a wise thing to do, was mm-hmm. to pitch a book that I wasn't pitching just to see, <laughs> you know, because I needed to yes. see, is this the kind of book yeah. you'd want? Right. And um, oh. I, we ended up like going with a different publisher, but um, one of those actually wanted it at the end. Mm. They, we got two offers and one was from that pitch that wasn't a pitch. That is such a good exercise, Susan, and I've done that a fair amount of times myself at writers' conferences where I have either sat in on group pitch sessions and just asked questions of the editor or the agent, or I've just met one-on-one with somebody and done the pitch that's not really a pitch, (laughs) and oftentimes at the end of those, I have had a request from the particular representative, like, yeah, send me your stuff. Sometimes I think they're kind of relieved that you're not really officially yeah. pitching anything, yes. that you're just showing an interest, you're showing that you want to try to learn the ropes, mm-hmm. how their particular publishing house works, and what you need to do to get your foot in the door. Those are some really valuable conversations. So congratulations Thanks. to you for actually getting <laughs> offers after the, the non-pitch pitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that first offer that you got, was, was that with one of the big five New York publishing houses? It was, you know, Penguin before Penguin merged with uh, Random House was its mm-hmm. own. It, it used to be the big six. And now it's the big five and probably soon will be the big four. But, yes. um, <laughs> but back then it was the big six and Penguin was one of them. And Penguin has many imprints. And one of their imprints was New American Library. And so that was the imprint that wanted my novel. At the time, they published a lot of historical fiction. So it was a really good place for me to begin. Now, after the merge, things moved around a little bit. So when Penguin and Random House merged, they kind of merged some of their imprints too. And so the fiction line, if you will, was picked up by Berkeley. So now when you see the spines of my books, you'll see the B for Berkeley on there. And that's because of the merger. Really, I didn't really change publishers as much as I just, they just moved some of their imprints around. And a lot of us fiction writers for New American Library were absorbed by Berkeley. How many books have you done with them? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. <laughs> seven. Okay. You did quite a few for the Christian market, and then you've done almost mm-hmm. as many now for the general market as you did when you were first starting out writing for the Christian market. Yeah, I'm getting close to, to matching it. Mm-hmm. Mm. And are you enjoying writing for the general market? Has that been a really good shift for you? It has. I feel like I don't regret at all the way I began my novel writing career. I think beginning with a niche market was the way to go for me because I knew nothing. It was probably a great way to kind of learn the ropes and cut my teeth. Um, But now that I'm in the general market, I feel like this is where my reader was all along. What was happening with every book I wrote for the Christian market was I could find about 10,000, 11,000 readers that my book was exactly what they were looking for. But there's a lot of readers in the Christian market who just didn't. My book was not was not appealing to them. I was not able to break or crash through that ceiling, if you will. Uh-huh. And so that's when I figured out, well, that's because my reader's not there. I, I found my 11,000 readers. That's probably all I would find. That's what it felt like anyway. And so as soon as I moved over into the general market, most all of my books that have sold well over that many. And that just says that not that I'm amazing. But that's where my reader is. Yes. And now we found each other. (laughs) That's a really good thing for writers to remember is that when you choose your reader, 
that person doesn't have to be set in stone for your entire writing career. That reader can grow and shift and change over time as long as you're willing to recognize that maybe your audience is not exactly who you were originally thinking it was mm -hmm. and you're willing to shift along with that, right. which it sounds yeah. like you've been willing to do. Yeah, because in the end, when you write for the public, well, you've got to be able to find each other somehow. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's just a matter of moving around until you do find each other. And what are some things that you are continuing to do now that you've written seven books for a general market publisher, one of the big five publishers, to continue to build your audience? For me, it's still always about the book first. The book is always paramount to me. Whatever book I'm writing next is, is paramount to me. And I feel like maybe that helps me up my game or raise the bar each time I start a new book. Each time I begin a new story, I, I want it to be better than the last one, which is kind of a lofty goal when you begin with a blank page. But that's my goal <laughs> mm -hmm. is to write a better book than the book I wrote before. When that happens, and if I feel like I'm, I'm writing my best, a lot of the other things come along with it. Like if you if you really do write a great book, well, then it does get critically reviewed. Critics who review that way, if they like it, and then they give you a great review, you begin that book's life with that wonderful pre-publication review. So all of that helps to set in motion a great launch. And then with the general market, one of the things that you have, I feel, is just a heightened distribution. If you make the migration to the general market, there's just better visibility. The distribution is better. If you do go into a brick-and-mortar store, your book is there along the fiction shelves with everybody else. You know, So I'm right there with Melville and Michener instead of being in like a little niche shelf where the Christian fiction sometimes is. It's often in a niche section that a lot of people don't go to, and they don't always carry everybody's book. Well, you know, now if you go into a brick and mortar store for me, you can go to the M's and that's where you'll find me. I can speak to that, Susan, because back in November of 2020, my husband and I went to Maui. I was in SeaTac Airport, Seattle-Tacoma International Airport, uh, waiting for my flight. And of course, I went in the bookstore. Where else am I going to go, right? And there was Susan Meisner. It was your latest book. And that was right there, along with all the other mega best-selling authors. I'm like, I know her. Can Aww. I take a picture of this and send it to Susan? Nice. So I had, a, I had a sighting of your book in an airport That's bookstore, which was super cool. You said that when you're working with one of the big five publishers or just in the general market in general, that your book gets a wider distribution and more visibility. They obviously have a little bit more funds to pour into the marketing. But I'm just guessing that you probably bear most of the brunt of the marketing efforts of your books, even so. So can you talk a little bit about that? What do you do to help get the book out there into the hands of those readers? Everybody kind of has to kind of decide or try out the different ways you can participate in your own promotion. You know, social media for me, I enjoy most of it. So I, I'm active on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And I pay attention to what the different people on those platforms like. You know, Instagram mm -hmm. is all about the photograph. It's a very yeah. visual platform. And so it, it doesn't make any sense to post a whole bunch of text unless your text is beautifully set against a beautiful you know, image. So, you know, pay attention to what makes the platforms work and then participate in that that way. So that's helpful to me. I'm also, um, I don't call it networking as much as I call it friend making, but I had a lot of new friends to make when I made the transition. So I have yes. lots and lots of new friends who also write for the general market and they're scattered all over the nation just like before. 
They write all kinds of different kinds of books. My readership is wider, and so what I read is wider.、Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I want to feel like I belong where I am, and so part of that is being present in the general market. So I spend a lot of time promoting my friends' books because they, in turn, and this is not because it just it just happens that way. You don't do it so that you do it because it's what friends do for each other. Yes. So when you promote other people's books. They promote yours, and a lot of times we、mm-hmm. have different readers, and so it's a very nice win-win for everybody. You can get a lot of new readers that way. That's helpful to do, and I would consider making it in your head that if you're making new friends more than、um, you're making a new network, because it just it just Ooh,、yeah. tends to dehumanize it a little bit if you think about it、yes. only as what it does for you. But if it's if it's friend making, well, then that's that's already a symbiotic relationship. So that is something I do. I also have hired out a, an outside publicist, and not everybody does that. Not everybody has the funds to do that. I certainly didn't in the beginning, but I have found that you know your publisher—they have so many other writers to promote. You're not the only one, and a big publisher has lots of writers. Every Tuesday, they've got somebody coming out with new books. Multiple people coming out with new books,、mm-hmm. and so their their attention and their revenue it's all spread very widely. So I do、um, now hire a publicist to keep the traction in the marketplace, because most publishers will give you three months, so you get, you get a three month launch, and then they really have to dial back to be able to give that same attention to the next writers coming up after you. If you hire a publicist, you can you know work it out so that you know, post three month mark you're still getting a lot of. Visibility. That's not something I recommend. It's just something you can think about doing. Yes.、Mm-hmm. Speaking of hiring a publicist, you said you have a few more funds now than you used、mm-hmm. to have to be able to do things like that. I think that's one question that a lot of people might have about writing for the general market because there's this perception that once you start writing for the general market and once you start writing for one of the big five or soon to be big four publishing houses, you have made it. You are now a multimillionaire. Can you address that? <laughs> Yeah, that's that always makes me laugh when I hear that because it's really the same. It's the same gig. It really is the same fortune can fall on you in the general market as happens to lots and lots of writers in the Christian market. So it really all depends on you know timing is wonderful. It's it's great to have the right book at the right time. You're not really in control of that. So I would say continue to write the best book you can. It might be the right book at the right time. But a lot of times that is something that just happens to you. It's not something you can plan, and so you know, write a great book that always helps with the sales. And know that if you're writing for a general publisher, well, you're going to have better distribution and visibility. That always helps. I can't explain why things turned around, but you know, A Fall of Marigolds、um, took off almost a year after it was published,、oh. which is very interesting. It took off, and then Secrets of a Charmed Life took off. And so both of those books continue to sell really well. And then I had a book come out that's just normal. Like <laughs> I can't. It, I don't know. And you'd think that you'd be building, building with each book. It could happen. It doesn't always happen. So it's not like you can say, "Well, if I do this, this is what will happen." It's really still write the best book I can write, and then see what happens. Because there's so much of it that you're not in control of. I was able to give up my last part-time job a few years ago, which was nice. I can concentrate solely on writing that wonderful book each time. It took a while to get there. I had a day job for a long time while I was writing books, 
it kind of depends on where you live, you know, whether or not you can make it like your only job. I live in Southern California. It's expensive here. It's a little different mm-hmm. if I live somewhere else. So I would say if you're looking at, well, how can I, you know, can I make a living at this? It depends on um, what happens to you after you write it, what happens in the market, which, again, you can't control. It could happen for you. And it depends on where you live and like just the cost of living of, of where you are. A lot of general market books, and I'm a big reader of general market books, they seem to have what I would call the obligatory or gratuitous sex scene or gratuitous swearing sprinkled in (laughs) throughout the book. That seems to be kind of a thing in American society right now. I did not see that at all in the nature of fragile things. How do you make those decisions? Do I include it? Do I not include it? Is there an expectation that my book, because it's for the general market, is going to have sex scenes in it and, and at least a little bit of swearing? How do you go about deciding? And do you get guidance from your publisher on that? How does that all work? That's a really good question. And everybody who writes for a living and has convictions about you know about life and God and all that has to figure out what are they, what are they comfortable with. And I'm not comfortable with having gratuitous sex scenes in my books, so I'm not going to have any. And I'm not comfortable using certain words. I just won't. And one time I asked my editor, I don't use the F word. I'm never going to use the F word. And I said, is that going to hold me back? And she said, you know what, Susan, people are not going to be looking through your books. going, where are all the F words? See, they're not going to be doing that. If you've captivated them with your story, they're not going to be counting or looking for that word. You know, at the end of it, someone might say, do you know how much swearing was in that book? They might say, oh, well, I don't remember. Or I don't think there was that. You know, they're not, because if the story was, was transportive, that's not going to be a thing. So she said, don't ever worry about that. And as far as gratuitous sex scenes, I write historical fiction. Part of writing historical fiction is sexual mores were very different. I write pre-sexual revolution, so I write everything <laughs> from 1950 backwards. I give myself an era where I've got some lovely parameters. It was different before the sexual revolution, mm-hmm. and um, it was even different language-wise. You know, Hemingway and Steinbeck, they couldn't use swear words in yeah. their writing because they weren't allowed to. They probably used them in ordinary speak, but they you couldn't write them back then. So to be able to pull off a story where there just isn't a lot of all of that, it kind of rings true to the language of the day because you just didn't back then, you know? Yeah. I've chosen a genre that works for me and my convictions and allows me to have female characters who don't sleep around, you know, because that just, mm-hmm. it was a different kind of woman who did that back then. Yeah. Um, or if you did, you were very secretive about it. You know, it was just, it was different. If you're running a rom-com, contemporary rom-com, you'll have to decide <laughs> What you're comfortable mm-hmm. with, because a lot of contemporary rom-coms, it's the um, attitudes and mores of the day that usually show up. And so you'll have to decide. It doesn't mean you have to. Are there any tips that you would like to leave us with based on your experience as an author? I usually tell writers that there really isn't time for you to read fluff. So just mm-hmm. read the good stuff. There's so much good stuff out there. I mean, there's more good stuff out there. When I, I'm, what I mean by good stuff is I mean stuff of literary quality. There's so much out there. You're never going to be able to read it all anyway. And because you're a writer, you're feeding your writing brain with whatever you're reading and even whatever you're watching. So I would say just watch the good stuff, stuff with good writing. I feel like if you feed your writing brain fluff, 
for entertainment because you want to be able to relax, it's going to get into your writing too. Mm -hmm. And you just don't want it there. I love to relax and kick back and not have to think about what I'm doing. But I would say find other ways to have recreational time with your brain other than watching inane stuff and reading books that are just fluff. And there are a lot of choices out there for watching. You know, most of us are streaming these days. There's some really good shows out there with excellent writing. If you're going to watch something for a mind break, just be careful what you watch because yes. you're, you're feeding your writing brain. And not just that. There's other reasons to think about what you're watching. But if you're a writer, you definitely want to think about what you're feeding your writing brain because what you're mm. consuming, books and movies and streaming television shows, your writing brain is picking up on all of it. That is a really good word, Susan. Thank you for that. And where can we go if we would like to investigate all these books that you've written and find out more about you? Well, thanks. You can go to my website. And actually, SusanMeisner.com also works. I have both URLs. Oh. The main URL is SusanLMeisner.com because I got it way back when, when I was first starting out. And for some reason, I thought I was going to have that L in my byline, and I never did. <laughs> So then I quickly got SusanMeisner.com. So either one will take you to okay. my website. And, there's... and your name is unique enough yeah. <laughs> that there's probably not a huge amount of other Susan Meisner. There aren't. Are I know there's an audiologist there. back in Connecticut somewhere with my name, <laughs> but uh, she, she's not a writer, I don't think. But I'm also on Facebook. My author page is Susan Meisner. That's not hard to remember. And on Instagram, someone else got Susan Meisner. So I can't have that oh. Instagram handle. But I am at Suze Meisner. So it's S-O-O-Z, Suze Meisner, all one word. That's my Instagram handle and on Twitter at Susan Meisner. Thanks, Susan. And I will put the link to all of that in the show notes over at bloggingbistro.com, which is really easy to spell and remember. <laughs> So you'll be able to find Susan directly from the show notes. Thanks so much, Susan, for joining us today on the podcast. It was just a delight talking with you and learning from you. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to talk with you again. And listener, in the show notes, if you would like to subscribe to the podcast so you can get more good stuff like this conversation I've had with Susan today, all you have to do is click the link there and I will email you a little notification, a little preview of every episode. And here's a really easy way to subscribe to the show and get an email notification from me every time. If you've got your phone out, just text the phrase PRO WRITER, P-R-O-W-R-I-T-E-R, -E to the number Four four two two two. That's four four two two two. And just follow the prompts that come in as a text message. Super easy to subscribe that way. I will also send you a little bonus download gift if you subscribe. You can also listen to the show via your favorite podcasting app, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher. It's on all of them. Just open your app and key in the professional writer, or you can tell your smart speaker. Play the Professional Writer Podcast, and depending on how clearly you pronounce those words, it will hopefully start playing the correct podcast. When the show pops up in your app, just save it to your favorite so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the show, please share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening to the Professional Writer Podcast. Talk with you again next time. <laughs>